And uh, we, we thank you especially this morning for, for new believers and, and a new sister in Christ, Lord. We thank you for um, this week. We thank you for watching over us and um, for blessing us with uh, safety and family and, uh, and friends, Lord. Be with Ben this morning as he uh, delivers your word to us, Lord. Prepare our hearts to uh, use that message and, and to go out into our community and to the world and, and show your love and to show uh, what being a, a Christian and being a follower of you is about, Lord. Lord, bless us as, uh, as we finish this morning and as we, uh, as we go out and, um, and love each other, Lord. Um, allow us to be lights for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. First Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to cover this morning. Uh, this is a, uh, I'm excited to preach this, this passage. This is one that's often misunderstood, especially verse 7, um, which we'll get into next week. Um, it's a passage that has uh, divided uh, denominations. It's a, passion, it's a passage that has split Christians and families. It's a passage that has caused... Um, a lot of division uh, within, I mean, just churches and families, like I said, just Christians in general, not even thinking about un- unbelievers, but just within the Christian church itself, um, because a lot of ways it's been abused in, in multiple ways. Sometimes it's just neglected, and other times it's placed so much of an emphasis on that there's just these issues that come about with it. So uh, what we'll do this morning is we're going to do what we always do. We're going to walk verse by verse, book by book. Uh, through this, we're going to see the first six verses, and then we're going to leave chapter 7 for next week, because I really want to make sure we understand what is being said and what isn't being said. And so even within the SPC, which is our denomination, this is an issue that's kind of taken precedence, um, and there's some uh, Twitter arguing going on, which is always just dumb. And so uh, it is important for us to know, and it is important for us to see. So let's read First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, and then I'll make just a few introductory comments, and we'll pray and we'll dive in. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles or wearing gold jewelry, but rather what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have uh, become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. So before we pray, let me just give some introduction. This is the third time in three weeks that we've seen the submission theme that's taken place. 
So Peter is writing this to these group of, he calls them elect exiles, that have been dispersed across Asia Minor, these Christians that are uh, part of these churches. That's kind of modern-day Turkey is the area where they're at. And they're being persecuted, not by the government yet, although that's coming. But So Peter's writing this really on how to live as exiles in the world. And so what Peter's gotten to now, after we, we laid the baseline of the theology, right, we have this living hope in Christ, and because this hope is living, it's not dead because Christ was resurrected and he's not in the tomb, that our hope is alive just as Jesus is alive. And because our hope is alive, it allows us to live in a way that is countercultural to what the world tells us. And so Peter is showing us that this gospel impacts how you and I live in our everyday normal lives. And so in, in, uh, he, he tells us, Peter tells us that we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. If they, right, God has, we trust that the Lord is sovereign and he's placed those authorities over us to, to reward good, to punish bad. And so we submit ourselves, we should be the best citizens that we could be in America and in the great nation of Texas and even in Ira. No nation of Texas? I thought we were more. Okay. Because God is Lord. We understand that ultimately our citizenship belongs to the kingdom of heaven, and so we use our citizenship as Americans or as Texans or as Scurry County residents for the glory of God. So we submit ourselves in a way to the government that makes us easy to deal with so that we can build relationships and put pebbles in people's shoes of the gospel. Last week, we read a passage that was difficult on slaves submitting to their masters, which was a common practice at the the time. It's not uh, like American slavery. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. Most of the slaves in the Roman Empire were prisoners of war, or they sold themselves into slavery to get out of a debt. And by the time Peter writes this, most of those slaves would have just been the children of slaves and had inherited that. But they made a wage. They could buy themselves out of slavery. And what Peter is saying for these slaves to do is you submit yourself to your authorities. You submit yourself to your masters, even if they're cruel to you. That God has placed you there for a purpose and for a reason. And if you can be kind, if you can share the gospel, if you can put these pebbles of gospel truths in people's shoes, then it irritates them, even if they're your masters, quote-unquote. Because ultimately there's freedom in Christ, and so we use that freedom for the glory of God. We related that to, to employment, right? That's the closest thing we can get to. Your, your boss, if he treats you good or bad, you submit to, to him or to her with respect and with, uh, with their authority. Or if you're the boss, you, you employ, you, you lead with respect for your employees. And now today we get to wives. So let's uh, pray. And then we will dive into nice, simple, uncontroversial passage. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. I do thank you that we, we do come to this passage this morning. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Um, God, it's, it's you. And so I pray as we walk through these verses and we see what you have for us, that you would open our hearts to be encouraged by your word. That you would help us to understand what's actually going on here. Help us to grow in you this morning, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's reread uh, 1 Peter 3. Uh, we're just going to do the first two verses. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure and reverent lives. 
So again, Peter has this, this shift now. This is the third submission passage. And all three of these passages tie back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits. And so what Peter has done is he is saying, if you're Gentiles living under a pagan government, this is how you live. If you're exiles living under um, a pagan master who treats you terrible, this is how you live. And now he's saying to these wives, if you're wives of an unbelieving husband, this is how you live. And it's this idea of, of submission. Now let's, let's look and just look at the text and let's clarify a few things. This is not saying every woman submits to every man, period. This is saying wives submit to your own husbands. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you get walked over. It doesn't mean you're passive. We'll see all of those things in this text. What it means is you respect your husband and trust that God has put him as the leader, the spiritual leader of your family. But let's think about this. If we look at who Peter has been writing to, and we think this is to an early church, then some of the earliest converts to Christianity were all of those who are called to submit, those who society would look down upon at the time. Slaves. Women. Who in this culture and at this place were not seen as as equal, but seen as lesser than. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ seems to be resonating with those groups far more than it seems to be resonating with the politically elite. And so what Peter's doing is he's saying, slaves are coming to faith in Jesus. Women are coming to faith in Jesus. And this has practical implications, right? If a a spouse becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and the other spouse is an unbeliever, that's going to impact your marriage in some very real ways. At this time and in this culture, the husbands probably had household idols in their homes. And they would want their family to worship those idols. But if the wife now is a believer in Jesus Christ, she cannot do that under a good conviction of the Lord, of what the Bible says. Yet Peter's telling her to submit, even to this unbelieving husband. So how do you do that? What does that look like? It's hard enough being in a Christian in a society that doesn't care for Christ, right? It's hard enough if you can imagine going to the market and being a believer when everybody else around you isn't. It's hard enough when you gather the water to go to the water well to fill up and be with all of the other women and children that are socializing, trying to grow in your faith, but understanding there's no support system for you at home. It's just within your church and that's it. You go home, but your husband's an unbeliever. You, you love him, and your love for him doesn't change when you become a Christian. All that changes is your desire for him to know Jesus Christ and be saved. But there's things that happen that, that flip in your heart when you're a believer in Jesus, and he's going to ask you to do things like pray to idols that are completely and fundamentally against what Christianity stands for. So how do you do this? Think about it. where do you go to rest if you're a, a wife of an unbelieving husband at this culture? Where do you go? Like, like now we can go home and we can relax, we can rest, we can get away, we can recover. But if you go home to an unbelieving husband, you don't get that opportunity. How do you raise your children? 
you share this good news of Jesus Christ with them while the spiritual leader of your family believes in something completely different, what does that look like when you're, the doors are shut and you're in your house alone? I have no doubt that you, you know women whose husbands are unbelievers and how hard that is. I know several, and my heart breaks for them. I know that I can go home and I can talk about Jesus with Morgan and I can raise my kids in the gospel and I know that Morgan's going to support and help me doing that with our kids. But, but what about the wife whose husband wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ whatsoever? Let me just, just make a side note here because there's this, maybe this idea that we pick up from this passage that's not true. These two were married as unbelievers. And then one, the, the wife most likely, became a believer. They were not a believer who married an unbeliever. This is important for us. We don't have time to go over it in depth, but it's an important point that we need to make. We have a lot of young ladies, a lot of girls who are growing up in our church and getting older and older. So you need to listen to me. You need to hear me because I'm your pastor and I love you deeply. Do not settle for an unbeliever. There are passages that we could walk through. There's whole texts, whole books of the Bible that we could go through where we could say, God would not have you date an unbeliever. Don't be unequally yoked would be one of them. We could look at what Israel happened when they were wandering in the wilderness, how they continually tried to be like the other nations instead of being distinct, being set apart, being holy. So for your sake, don't date an unbeliever. Marital love is more than an uncontrollable feeling. You don't fall into marital love. If you fall into love, you can fall out of love. Marital love is a choice. Now, there's that puppy love stage that happens at the beginning where it's easy to choose those things, but there hits a point. When you wake up and you go, I'm going to choose to love you today as opposed to choosing not to love you. (laughs) So, Simply, the Bible doesn't talk about marital spousal love as an emotion. It's more than that. It's a commitment. It's an unleaving commitment. That's what the, the Hebrew word for love has said means. It's a commitment that doesn't leave. It's a staying love. So an unbelieving husband, even if he, he, even just an unbelieving spouse, doesn't value the same things that you have. He doesn't have the gospel. So if you see a boy that you're interested in, girls, listen, if you see a boy that you're interested in, talk theology. And if you scare him away, you are better for it. Read your Bible. Become deep theologians. If a boy is interested in you, he will either read the Bible too, or he will flee because you're going to intimidate him. If the Lord calls husbands to be the spiritual leaders of the family, then you need to find somebody who can spiritually lead you, not somebody that you're having to carry around. As an old youth pastor, I can't tell you the number of girls that fell into the temptation that if I'll date him, he will change. I can't tell you the number of times I've had broken-hearted girls sitting in my office weeping and crying because it didn't happen. Where we look now and we see girls who are married to guys who want nothing to do with Jesus and have left them to raise their kids in the church alone. Find someone who's growing in the gospel and who can lead you in that. That is the key for a healthy and a successful marriage.
All of that is just a side note that I felt like fit here well that we needed to do. This passage shows us a struggle for a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. The main goal for these wives, if we read the text, is to win over their husband to Jesus Christ. But here's the struggle. You can't save your unbelieving spouse. You can't save your children. You have no power within yourself to save anyone. There's no text of Scripture in all of the Bible that says go out and save people. Saving belongs to the Lord. We plant the seeds of the gospel. We water with the uh, water of the gospel, the living water of Jesus, but it is God who gives the growth. And so the command here to win your husbands over is to live a life that shows your husband the value of the gospel because that is an intimate relationship that is always around. He hears what you say when you're outside of the house. He sees what you do when you're inside of the house and the doors are closed. Live a life that would show him how exemplary the gospel is. Your call, my call as Christians, is not to save people, but it's to be diligent, it's to be faithful, and it's to trust God. And so Peter's telling these women of husbands who disobey the word, that means they're unbelieving husbands, to live your life, to conduct yourself in a manner for the glory of God. So that your husbands might be won over without a word. That's an interesting phrase there. What does this mean? Because earlier in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, uh, Peter says, uh, sorry, chapter 2, I put it wrong on the slide, Rance. It's chapter 1, verse 23. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. And the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So the word of the gospel is proclaimed. That means it must be spoken. How can somebody hear the good news of Jesus if nobody tells them with their words the good news of Jesus? And so Peter here is not meaning never share the gospel with your unbelieving spouse. What he's saying is once your spouse knows what you believe and why you believe it, it is not your job to be the Holy Spirit and to continually pound and pester and pound and pester until they repent or until they leave. That's not the goal. You and I make terrible Holy Spirits. It's not our job to wear somebody down so that they will then be saved. No, no, what Peter's saying is your unbelieving spouse knows what the gospel is. They've heard the gospel proclaimed. They've seen your life, and now your goal is to live that out in a way that they watch your life. They know why you're living that way, and it should confound them on how you do that. You cannot save your husband, but you can be diligent to God. You can be faithful over the course of years when that intimate relationship, they're going to see things about you that nobody else sees. And you can trust God. And so we proclaim the gospel uh, to our unbelieving spouses if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, but you live the gospel out too. Peter says, live a pure and a reverent life. It's interesting. Pure is this idea of of holiness, distinct and set apart. And reverent is the same word that gets translated as fear in other places in the Bible. So who are we to fear? Your spouse? No. 
You have reverence towards God. You are to pursue God first and ultimately. The only way that you will be able to live the gospel out in this kind of lifestyle. Remember, there's no turning it off. Where you would rest if your spouse is unbelieving, you don't get the chance to do that. How you live outside the house matters, and how you live inside your house when the doors are shut matters, especially if your spouse is an unbeliever, because they're watching your life. They hear what you proclaim, and they want to see, does your life match this gospel word that you continue to say? So you don't fear your husband. You fear the Lord. You have reverence with the Lord. You don't have a place to put your guard down. There's no real help at home. It's by understanding that God's help is truly what you need, and it's enough. And so if that's the life that he's calling you, it's interesting here that he doesn't say, leave the marriage if your spouse is an unbeliever. He says, love your husband with a love that he will never be able to reciprocate because he does not understand it. Maybe through your prayers, maybe through your actions, maybe through your words, the Holy Spirit will reach your husband's heart and give him a new life and he will be saved. And imagine the tears of joy that will stream down your face that day. Imagine the change of your home life. Imagine watching them get to be baptized as believers in Jesus Christ getting to partake in the Lord's Supper with you. Imagine them helping you, you getting to help him grow in his faith. And then as he grows in the Lord, he gets to help you grow in your faith. Imagine him leading your family spiritually with you, sharing the gospel with your children, going to church with you, sitting in the pew with you, hearing the words proclaimed together to you. You conduct your lives, you live your lives with that goal in mind. So what does this look like? Peter gives us an example in, in verse four, uh, verse 3. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hair and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So Peter says, you submit to your husband, you respect your husband in hopes that if he's an unbeliever, he might see your gospel light that you're living out in front of him. He might hear the gospel proclaimed and believe. And then Peter jumps to this temptation that nearly all women face using outward beauty to be attractive to whatever you're wanting it to be, to your boyfriend, to your husband, to get them to do what you want them to do. Like, if you do this, then, right, like, we, we could walk down some arguments here, right? Like, if this is what you decide to do, you find some boy who's interested in you, doesn't really care for Jesus, and so you dress up, you doll up, and you say, we're going to go to church together, and I'm, you're going to have to be a Christian, and he'll say, okay. But does his heart change? You're not trying to win people to you. You're trying to win people to the Lord. Because the reality of life is beauty fades. And at some point, time takes its toll. And the true nature of salvation will come to light if it hasn't already by that point. In fact, Peter, Peter says, don't do your hair all fancy to try to attract your husband to Christ. Don't wear fancy gold jewelry to try to attract your husband to Christ. Don't break out the fancy dresses and clothe yourself to attract your husband to Christ. Now, is Peter saying that women should never dress up, never do your hair, never wear jewelry? No. The reason we know this is because Peter would have us clothed. And the third thing he says is dressing. So, right, if we're going to say you should never do these things, then that puts us in a weird situation. Motivation is the point that Peter's getting at. 
The goal is to win your unbelieving spouse to Jesus, not to yourself. That's the question. What am I doing? Who am I attracting him to? What's in the heart matters more than the external, right? God cares more about what's in your heart than the brand of purse that you're wearing. He cares more about what's in your heart than your hairstyle, than the jewelry. And God is the only one who sees the heart. And so what's valuable to God's eyes are things that moth and rust do not destroy. A gentle and a quiet spirit. So gentle means, uh, this is the definition from from the, the lexicon, pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of oneself. By the sense of one's self-importance. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. Quiet means lead a peaceable and quiet life. See, the idea Peter's getting at is to be humble and to be peaceful. That's what the Lord's looking for in hearts. That is what the gospel does to our hearts. Those looking to grow in Christ will think less of themselves. They will think more about Jesus. They will find ways to be peaceful in how they share the gospel with others as they grow in Jesus, especially if the relationship on the outside is of their relationship with Jesus, right, with a lost husband. The Bible tells us this is great worth, great value to God. Being submissive to your husband means that you obey God first and foremost, and what's most valuable to God, what's most attractive to God, is also what might win your husband to Jesus. Caring about his needs, putting the gospel in front of him in a lifestyle. If your hair's all fixed up and elaborate, if your makeup's on point, if you get injections in all the right spots, if you work out to make sure that your figure pleases your spouse or the mirror or whoever you're trying to please, if you have the shiniest and prettiest and biggest jewelry on, if your clothes are perfect and fancy, if you're all dolled up in the best possible way that you could imagine, those might attract your husband, but not to Jesus. Instead, If all the time, even when you're not dolled up, when you're with your unbelieving husband, if you're humble, if you're loving, if you're seeking a peaceful home instead of chaos, over time, you may not think he sees those things or he feels those things. But if you're peaceful with him, not always trying to start an argument, he, he knows what you believe, he knows why you believe it. When he wants you to worship the household gods, if you politely refuse, but you carry this gentle and this quiet spirit with you, what happens at some point is this kindness and this lovingness will not make sense to him. He will say something along the lines of, why are you this way all the time? You don't seem rattled. You don't seem shook. You, you even tell me no to the things that go against what you can believe, but I can feel within your no this desire to follow my lead, but, but you won't do it at the expense of Jesus. Why are you the way that you are? It's in those moments that you can peacefully say, because Jesus died in my place. And you can share the gospel in a way that doesn't force it down his throat, try, not trying to push him to make a decision, but simply putting a pebble in the shoe giving him something to stop and to think about, praying that God would save him. But does this work? Verse 5. 
For in the past, the holy women who put their hopes in God, uh, uh, who put their hope in God, also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. So, so in the past, right? Peter is drawing our eyes backwards. He's saying, look at the Old Testament and I'll show you how this works. And we can look at the Old Testament and see all sorts of godly women whose examples we could follow. We just walked through Genesis. You can go back through Genesis and read Sarah, Rebecca, Leah. You can go to Ruth. Look at Naomi. You can go look at Esther's life. The Bible is one of the few ancient books that elevates women to anything beyond subservient human beings. But Peter tells us a specific example. He says, Sarah submitted to Abraham. And, and there's one story, if you remember it, where Sarah submits to Abraham in a way that I don't think anybody else would submit to their husband. They go down to Egypt, and Abraham is scared that Pharaoh is going to look at his wife and go, you're so attractive that he's going to kill me so that he can have you as his wife. And so Abraham tells Sarah, lie. Say that you're my sister. And what does Sarah do? says that she's his sister, and Pharaoh takes her in to be one of his wives. Now, by God's providence and by God's grace, it comes to, to be known to Pharaoh before anything happens that that is not actually Abraham's wife, uh, sister. That is his wife, although there's some gray area there. Abraham was in sin. He should never have put his wife in that place, yet she submitted to him, and no woman is called to submit to their husband if he's commanding you to do something to sin, if he's asking you to sin. That's not what submission means. But also, in that story, Sarah never calls Abraham Lord. There's only one place where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's in Genesis chapter 18. Now, just to get this out of the way, she's not calling him like Savior Lord. She's calling him like, the way that word's used is like Sir. It's a sign of respect. So Genesis uh, chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, is the story of when, when uh, God and, and the angels show up and they talk to Abraham right before they go to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. These are those angels, if you remember that story. And so they go to this tent, uh, they're talking to Abraham, Sarah's inside the tent, and this is what happens. Chapter 18, verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Wouldn't you love to have that written about you in you know the inerrant word of God? You're old. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight. What we see here is, is Sarah laughing, not out of disrespect, but laughing at just kind of the absurdity of what this feels like. A 90-year-old woman pregnant, could you imagine it? That would be an interesting hospital to be in, wouldn't it? What we see is Sarah's off-the-cuff response when she doesn't realize anybody else is listening is this respect for her husband, this heart that wants to submit and follow him. She did not know anyone was listening. She was in the tent, listening, eavesdropping. She had her cup on the door and was listening to what was going on. And just as 
believers are called sons of, of Abraham, we learn here female believers are called daughters of Sarah. That you become her child, heirs of the covenant when we repent and we turn to Jesus. And the sign of this is that you do what is good. Things that your husband sees as good. And you don't feel fear and you don't feel intimidation. How could this possibly be? Well, it all comes back to the gospel. What Peter tells us is these women had their hope in God. This means that they belonged to God, that there is a holiness about them. They're set apart and they're distinct. They're separated for God and they have hope in God, not hope in their husband. Hope in the Lord. And this leads to a fearlessness for them because if they hope in God ultimately for everything, then what could possibly hurt them? The worst thing that can happen if your hope is in God, then it leads to a fearlessness because the worst thing the world could do would be to kill us, which immediately ushers us into the presence of God. Oh, no. This confident spirit, this fearlessness that develops from the gospel leads to a quiet and a gentle spirit a humble and a peaceful spirit because you don't have anything to prove. There's no need for you to argue. There's no need for you to fight for what you believe in. You you talk about it in a loving way, in a kind way. You use arguments. You try to convince. you, You pray. You do all of those things, but you do it in a loving way and when the time is appropriate because you understand you're not God. And this leads to doing good deeds. They don't save us, but they are a result of salvation that we do good things. So we're not lazy. We're not vegging out on the couch. We're out doing things for the good of the Lord because God has placed us where he's placed us. And in this context, he's placed this wife with an unbelieving husband. So everything she's doing is trying to bring the gospel light to her unbelieving spouse. And so you're not an offense to your husband. You stand in awe of, of, of God. You, you do all the good things that you can do. And your husband, in turn, looks at your life and goes, I don't understand how you can continue to do it this way. There's a respect for him, a submission to him. Because he's supposed to be the spiritual leader of your life. And he benefits from the good deeds. And he, he maybe one day will understand that the hope that you have is a hope that he needs. And you might win him to the Lord. I didn't didn't come up with this list, but this is a good spot for us to to just walk through what submission isn't and what submission is biblically. Submission isn't agreeing with your husband on all important matters. The wife believes in Jesus and the husband does not. You don't submit to his unbelief. Submission isn't leaving your brain at the wedding altar. She is called to win her husband to Christ, which means she is thinking about him, praying for him constantly. Submission isn't avoiding an effort to change your husband. It is winning him to Christ. Understanding you're not the Holy Spirit, right? You can't press him and press him and press him and force him to repent, but you can try to win him to Jesus. Submission isn't putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. You don't join in any sin. Submission isn't about getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband. God is the source of eternal life, not your spouse. Submission isn't acting in fear. She encourages a God-dependent meekness and a courage. She fears the Lord because she fears the Lord. It's not a fear of what her husband will do or not do. 
What submission is, is it's a divine calling of a wife to joyless, joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it out according to her gifts, which means in every marriage, this submission is going to look slightly different. Because there's different gifts, different struggles that we all have. But the aim is to magnify God's superior worth by hoping in him through Jesus Christ as a more precious and a more resourceful, that he's more precious and more resourceful than her husband. And by showing that her hope is in Jesus and it results in a life that honors her husband more, that her husband uh, is respected more if she follows after Jesus than if she treats him like the idol that he really wants to be treated as. Charles Spurgeon has this old story he told uh, back in 1874. And I want to read it to you. He says this, I think I have told you the story of a husband who was very loose, wild, deprived man of the world. He had a wife who for many years bore with his ridicule and unkindness, praying for him day and night, though no change came over him except that he even grew bolder in sin. One night, being at a drunken feast with a number of his cursing companions, he boasted that his wife would do anything he wished. She was as submissive as a lamb. Now, he said, she has gone to bed hours ago, but if I take you all to my house, she will at once get up and entertain you and make no complaint. Not she, they said, and the matter ended in a bet, and away they went. It was in the small hours of the night, but in a few minutes she was up and remarked that she was glad that she had two chickens ready, and if they would wait a little, she would soon have supper spread for them. They waited, and before long, at the late hour, the table was spread, and she took her place at it as if it was quite an ordinary manner, acting the part of hostess with cheerfulness. And one of the company, touched in his better feelings, exclaimed, Madam, we ought to apologize to you for intruding upon you in this way. And at such an hour, I am at a loss to understand how it is that you receive us so cheerfully. For being a religious person, you cannot approve of our conduct. And her reply was, I and my husband were both formerly unconverted, but by the grace of God, I am now a believer in Jesus Christ. And I have prayed daily for my husband, and I have done all that I can to bring him to a better mind. But as I can see no charge in him, I will fear that he will be lost forever. So I have made up my mind that I will make him as happy as I can while he is here. They went away. And her husband said, Do you really think I shall be happy, unhappy forever? I fear so, she said. I would to God that you would repent and seek forgiveness. That night of patience accomplished her desire. He was soon found with her on the way to heaven. Yield on no point of principle, but in everything else be willing to bear reproach, to be mocked and despised for Christ's sake. This is a hard saying, says one. I know it is, but divine grace can make the heaviest burden light and transform duty into delight. Wives, I hope you understand the power you have, the influence that you have over your spouse. It's not one to be taken lightly. God calls you to something that is extremely difficult and extremely hard. And by the grace of God, it's good. So let's land the plane. Unbelieving husbands, 
there is more to life than living for yourself and for your idols. These idols can be good things in our life. Our kids can be an idol. Our spouse, our wife can be an idol. Our job, our career can be an idol. Our our hobbies. But at the end of the day, what you need to be taken care of is you are a sinner. And the only way to be free from sin is to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. To lean into the gospel of the good news of Jesus today. There is more to life. For believing husbands. We'll get to you next week in verse 7. But know that God has called you to be the spiritual leader of your home. So lead well. Make it easy for your wife to follow you. Make it easy for your wife to respect you. Make it easy for your wife to honor. Repent where you need to repent and keep leading your family to Jesus. You're going to do it imperfectly and that's okay. Lean into the gospel. Your family doesn't need you to be the Savior. They need you to point them to the Savior. So lead your wife. Don't let your wife know more about the Bible than you know. Grow in Jesus. You can only lead her to the depth that you are. So continue to grow in Jesus yourself so that you can lead your family more and more into Jesus. Unbelieving wives, I imagine this message sounds crazy. But in the bottom of your heart, I know that you know it's true. God has created you to be a helper. To follow your husband. Not to be a doormat, but to be the biggest ally in his life. And sometimes we think when we say that wives are helpers to their husband, that it's this less position. That's not true at all. Do you know the Holy Spirit is called the helper in the New Testament? The helper is not the weak one. The one who needs help is the weak one. It's a position of strength. What your husband needs is for you to love Jesus far more than you could ever love him. So what are you waiting for? There is more to life than just waiting for the next day and living for the next day. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith and be saved. For believing wives, you have so much power and so much influence over your husband. Use it for the gospel. You're not the Holy Spirit, but you are uniquely equipped to be to your spouse, to be his helpmate. To either win into the gospel or to encourage him to grow in Jesus Christ. He's not your Savior. Jesus is. Help lead him into Jesus. Help him to lead. Submit to him in a way that gives him respect, that gives him confidence, that draws him to Jesus too. For single people, this may sound like it has nothing to do with you. That's not true. All of the Bible is profitable. You may not have a spouse, but you certainly have people that you're close to. So grow in Jesus. If you're looking for a spouse, don't settle. Find someone who loves Jesus more than you and grow with them in the gospel, with the Lord leading both of you. If, if that's not what you're at, you're, you're content with your singleness, use it for the gospel. You emulate Paul and Jesus when you use your singleness for the glory of God. Find your hope not in finding a spouse, but in Christ. In church, in everything that we do, glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. 
I thank you for passages like this, passages that are difficult, passages that stretch us and push us, and God stretches passages that straight up confront with what our culture teaches is right and wrong. God, I pray that your words would be encouraging to us, that your words would help us to repent where we need to repent, to turn to you and to follow after you more and more. God, where your words go out, life happens, and I pray that that's what you would do this morning. That a passage that isn't going to make sense to unbelievers, that isn't going to make sense to the world, would be a passage that would stir up our hearts for you. That would grow us in you for the glory of you. Help us to worship you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.